Today is our final lesson in this 12-week uh, jet tour through the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be wrapping up with chapters 15 and 16. You know, it was just last Sunday that a good pastor, a friend of mine, of mine, smiled and said to me, he said, you know that theologians have written books this thick on chapter 15 alone. So we're leaving the jet tour and boarding the rocket tour this morning. How I wish we had 10 Sundays to explore and just marvel at the Mount Everest of chapter 15, this glorious chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its implications for us. We're going to see that the resurrection is a linchpin for the gospel. If it's not the heart of the gospel, it's certainly the lungs. And when Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to masterfully lay out the magnificence of the resurrection power and purpose, not just to persuade us of its validity, but to use it as an impetus, a catalyst, a driving force for living all out for Christ. We are compelled to live not just with an eye on the resurrection, but with our entire being turned toward it. And not only pointed in that direction, but running with all our might. And not just with our might, which as you know is pretty much nothing, but with all the power of God propelling us toward our eternal reality. The splendor of eternity. So I'll be the first to admit today that as I've, as I've studied chapter 15, I have not lived for the resurrection like I could and should. But by the grace of God, my prayer is that all of us will leave here today more convinced and more committed to the reality of the resurrection than we have ever been before. So if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Paul recognizes that he is nearing the end of this letter. And his passion is now peaking, and his, his fervor is reaching its climax as he pours his heart into the absolute necessity of the bodily resurrection of Christ, and therefore the bodily resurrection of all believers. Frederick Meyer said this in his commentary, if chapter 13 is a psalm of love, then chapter 15 is a psalm of hope a hope that cannot be ashamed. It is the most memorable argument in existence for the resurrection of the body. So let's read this memorable argument beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who all are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. For the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthy. As is, and as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can readily see that these are amazing words. How can our mind understand such truths? Thankfully, you give us the Spirit who opens our eyes and gives our, not only our minds, but our hearts understanding. We ask that you would teach us this day, Lord. Teach us in a way that we will change, that we will become more like Christ, that our minds will be transformed to know what the perfect, acceptable will of God is. Thank you that you give us the freedom in America to gather like this, to enjoy and to savor and to study and even proclaim your word. Lord, may we be good stewards of such freedom, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can see, we have just a little bit of ground to cover, so let's dive right into verse 1. Paul said to the Corinthian church, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This is one of the simplest and clearest pictures of the gospel at work. We receive it. We stand in it, meaning our faith is placed upon it, and we are consequently saved by it. And now we hold fast to it. That's a simple and excellent picture of what it means to be a Christian. 
we hear the truth, we believe in it and experience it, and then we hold on for the ride. But then we see a warning at the end of the verse, a warning not to believe in vain. Those are striking words. We're looking at a useless belief, a belief that accomplishes nothing. Remember what we studied in James 2.19 a little while back, that even the demons believe, and yet their faith does not subject them to Christ as their Lord and Savior. They know the facts, and they resist them. They hate them. They make themselves the enemies of what they know to be true. Such a belief is possible. And this verse begs all believers to evaluate their faith. Perhaps that would be the first application point for us this morning. This is a healthy exercise for Christians. Do I have a genuine faith that accomplishes much, or do I have a futile faith, a belief in vain, or worse yet, a demonic faith? One that knows and, be and believes the truth, but still rejects it. Again, or rather, is my faith one that grips tightly, that clings for dear life to the truth of God's Word. This verse is echoing a fundamental biblical truth, and that is that genuine followers of Christ have a faith that will not let go. Ephesians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. By the grace of God, by the keeping power of the Father, John 10, 29, the believer's faith remains in Christ to the end. If it doesn't, it's not because they got unsaved. It's not because they became unadopted. It's not because they slipped out of the palm of the Father that never releases His own. It's because they believed in vain from day one. Their belief was never real. The Holy Spirit never came in and dwelt in them. Knowledge was recognized, but grace was never received. The truths of the doctrine of salvation give clear warning to those who are believing in vain, yet they also give absolute confidence to those who do believe in Jesus Christ and who believe in a way that they acknowledge and submit to the person and the truths of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Word of God. If you are uncertain on this, don't delay in searching the Scriptures. Discuss them with a fellow believer. Go to someone in the church you respect and let them study the Word of God with you. Go to one of the church leaders if you like. And let them study the Scriptures with you so that you can be certain that your faith and belief is holding fast to God. Know whom you have believed and know that you have not believed in vain. Verses 1 and 2 are now followed by one of the clearest definitions of the Gospel. We've seen the Gospel at work in simple terms. Here's the clear, one of the clearest definitions of the Gospel. Verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried proving His death and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Christ died, was buried, and was resurrected on the third day according to biblical prophecy. This was a miracle of epic proportions, as you know. And not only that, verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, speaking of the group of disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Several hundred documented eyewitnesses to the resurrection. If you want to know more about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, then you want to be attending Bill's Young Adult Sunday School class in a couple weeks, the post-resurrection effect. But for now, we simply recognize that there were hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And many of them, as Paul is pointing out here, were still alive at the writing of this letter. It's as though Paul was saying, if you don't believe me, go ask them. Listen to their testimony for yourself and see if you're persuaded. It wasn't just a spirit. Jesus was resurrected in bodily form. The disciples saw him. Members of his family saw him. Hundreds of believers. And finally, Paul as well. They all recognized him. They sat with him. They ate with him. They communicated with him. Verse 9, from the last part of verse 8. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace did not prove vain toward me. But I, be, I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Step back with me for a minute and let's recognize the gravity of what Paul just said. Of all the apostles, he claims to be most undeserving, the least fit, the most unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because he persecuted and tormented God's church. He beat, he imprisoned, and he killed many of the early Christians. And what is his only hope in serving Christ now? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Listen closely. If you have a dark past, a shameful history, one that makes you hang your head low, then friend, lift up your head and hear what Paul just said in these verses. He had a dark past, one of tremendous, immeasurable sin. On all accounts, he was one of the greatest enemies of the early church. And yet he did not let that past weigh down the grace of God in and through him. He did not belittle the power of God to work through him on account of his past. Instead, he saw it as a challenge to be all the more mighty for God. 
If you have a past, as we all do, then I point you to the example of Paul. Prove that the grace of God is not in vain in you. Don't just do what's right. Don't just serve. Serve the most. Lead the church of God. Not you, but the grace of God in you, of course. Paul was nothing more and nothing less than a brilliant testimony of the grace of God. Isn't that an awesome hope for sinners? No wonder Christ chose Paul to be the final apostle. A testimony to the millennia of the grace of God. That this is why we are Christians. Where else can you go and not only shed your guilt, not only be forgiven, not only find hope, but also find the power to excel in the virtues of holiness? May no believer leave this room sulking or hiding in the past of sin's guilt and shame. If you are, remember the cross. It's why we preach Christ crucified, so we can remember the forgiveness and the power that have been given to us, not only to recover from sin's devastating grip, but to come forth as a leader among the people of God. That is the hope and the power of grace. For some here, perhaps this is the message of chapter 15 for you today. Verse 12, based on the premise and the power of the gospel, Paul now stands in the courtroom, you could say. He puts on his legal attorney hat, and he aggressively challenges the accusation that the resurrection of believers is a false idea. You may know that the Jewish Sadducees did not believe in a bodily resurrection, so perhaps that was creeping into the church. And then there was Gnosticism, which you may know held to the view that all matter is basically and intrinsically evil and only the spirit is good. So they weren't interested in another body in the next life. So regardless of wherever this challenge to the resurrection was coming from, it was alive and it was well and it was a threat to the belief of the early church. So Paul speaks to it now. Verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you... Some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. Again, speaking particularly of the resurrection of believers, the hope of eternal life. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ, and, and listen closely, this is why the bodily resurrection of Christ is so important. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. What a statement against this challenge to the resurrection of believers that when Christ returns, 
we will rise and perhaps meet him in air, but not with a body. Paul says if there is no resurrection for believers, then there's no resurrection for Christ, and all is worthless. Worthless preaching, worthless faith, worthless testimony, worthless forgiveness, worthless hope. And what is the sum of the matter? Of all humanity, Christians are the most pitiful. The King James Version uses the, the word miserable. If there is no resurrection, then we are the most miserable of all people. Why? Because of the teachings of Jesus Christ in, in passages like Matthew chapter 16, 25 and 26. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If there is no resurrection, what good would it be to lose this life only to gain nothing in the next? We would be losers on both accounts, most pitiful, most miserable. Notice also that the text says in particular, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. And this is a discussion over the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he was not resurrected, then you are still in your sins. You see, even if only our spirit went to heaven once we die, and that's it, that's not good enough. Because if Christ has not been bodily raised, then the penalty for sin still exists. Death is still outstanding. And if that penalty is still in effect, then you and I are still subject to the penalty. The bottom line is, we're still in our sins. Even our spirit will not go to heaven because we are guilty. No salvation, no faith, because death is still in effect over the body which is made in the image of God. No hope, even eternal death, is still in effect. But hallelujah, verse 20 kicks off with one three-lettered pivotal word. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, that is, the first one, the first of the season, of those who are asleep, that is, of those who are dead. For since by a man came death, and who would that man be? Adam. By also came the resurrection of the dead. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. And who would that man be? Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In Adam, meaning his offspring, all his offspring, which is all humanity, will die. All die because his sin affects all his offspring. However, all the offspring of Christ, all those who are in Christ, will be made alive. So we learn that whereas Adam's sin affects all his offspring, Christ's righteousness affects all his offspring. These verses greatly help us to understand the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of righteousness. These are life-changing truths. Quickly note that this verse is sometimes erroneously used to teach that everyone will eventually make it to heaven. You've heard the, the phrase, all paths, 
all faiths lead to heaven. Like the verse says, all people will eventually be made alive. However, we know that to be a fatally incorrect teaching. That kind of thinking and teaching happens when a person fails to read the whole text, even the whole sentence here, and draws conclusions just from part of one statement. Not a one of us wants others to go around quoting us out of context like that. We shouldn't do it to Scripture either. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, that is, Christ is the first one made alive, the first one resurrected, after that, those who are Christ's at His coming. After that, those who are Christ's will be resurrected when He returns. Speaking of the rapture, the return of Christ. This verse is clearly teaching what the rest of Scripture says, and that is that only those who are Christ's will be made alive at His coming. And the obvious implication is that there are some who will not be Christ's. They will not be part of his offspring. They will not be made alive. Many scriptures teach us that those who do not believe in Christ as the risen Son of God will suffer eternally. They will be judged with eternal death in hell. Matthew 25, 20, 46 says, These, the unsaved, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These are life and death truths that we cannot afford to be wrong upon. It's biblical truths like these that drive us to be certain of our salvation and to be passionate about sharing this news with those who are lost. It's truths like these that drive us to live as effective witnesses of God's amazing grace and salvation. Let's look at verse 24, a word of prophecy. Then comes the end when He, that is Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet speaking of the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand years here on earth. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Now, without spending time answering all the potential questions in that passage, we simply recognize that Christ, with the power of God, will ultimately conquer every enemy, including death. And then, although he is fully God and fully man, he will humbly and lovingly continue to submit himself to God the Father. We've touched on that recently. And in the end, God will be all in all. We're looking at the new heaven and the new earth, eternity in the full splendor of God's glory, the way things were intended to be. 
Verse 29. Having reestablished these heavenly and future truths, Paul gives their earthly and present ramifications. Verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now, if you've studied this verse at all, you know this is an odd one. There are over 30 interpretations of that verse. And some consider this verse to be the most difficult verse to understand in the entire New Testament. But simple context makes for simple interpretation. First, nowhere in Scripture do we find any instruction to be baptized for the dead as do the Mormons. Second, the Corinthians would have been well aware of the pagan rituals all around them of being baptized for the dead. So Paul may very well have been alluding to them. Notice that he uses third person in this phrase. If the pagans have enough faith to believe in the resurrection, why is it so improbable to the believers, to you, the church, especially having seen the evidences of the resurrection of Jesus? And third, notice that Paul never said he approved of this practice. He simply acknowledged that many people believe in life after this. And personally, I find it probable that Paul may have been acknowledging that we are baptized into Christ just like those past believers who are now dead. And if they are not going to be resurrected, why would we be baptized on account of them and their faith? Why would we follow the tradition of the dead if there is no reality to it? So regardless of our interpretation, we're careful not to pull this verse out of context nor to interpret it at odds with the numerous passages throughout Scripture that clearly teach that salvation is by grace alone through faith in Christ, and it is not by any works of righteousness, including baptism. You see texts like Ephesians 2, etc. Let's look at verse 30. Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Paul is saying, why would I go through those recent dangers at Ephesus if not for a resurrection? What in the world do I personally stand to gain from these hourly, life-threatening experiences? Guzik said it simply in his commentary. Most of us are so concerned about living comfortable lives here on earth that, that our lives give no evidence of the resurrection. Paul lived such a committed Christian life, people could look at him and say, there is no way he would have lived like that unless there was a reward waiting for him in heaven. Let me quickly interject another primary application today a chief focus point in this chapter. And it's going to be continue, continue to be developed throughout the chapter. But the obvious application question is this. Can people tell that you and I are living for the resurrection? Living for the life to come? Let's develop that thought with a few further questions. What does that kind of resurrection-driven living look like? What are the marks, the characteristics, the decisions, the values, the choices of a resurrection-driven 
believer, I encourage you, I challenge you, and I will do it as well, to go home this week and follow through on these application questions. I've written these questions in the salt starter in the bulletin for your small groups. Now, whether we study it there or study it in our personal devotions, let's open to this text and meditate on these verses and answer these questions. Am I a resurrection-driven believer? Regardless of our answer, how can I grow more? For some here, perhaps this is the message of chapter 15 for us today. Continuing in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this life is all there is, then why not enjoy it to the max? As they say, eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because life is short. But again, this life is not all there is. So now Paul shifts from this series of rhetorical questions and ideas to direct instruction. Now imagine that. He hasn't even gotten to the instructions yet. I got to this point in my study of this sermon, I thought, man, I've already got plenty to work on, but here come the instructions. Verse 33, do not be deceived. You know the right answers to the questions just asked. You have the evidence. You know that Christ has taught on all these matters, especially the resurrection and how it directs our thinking and living. Don't be fooled. Don't be tricked. What does he say next? Bad company corrupts good morals. We thought our grandmother made that phrase up. No, that's Bible wisdom right there. And it, it was actually a common phrase in society. And Paul was echoing its wisdom even here in this letter to the church. Choose your friends and influences wisely. Bad company doesn't just corrupt good thinking. They corrupt our good judgment. They pervert our discernment. They warp our values, our habits, our good disciplines. They corrupt all the way from the heart to the hands. And such company was influencing the church. Verse 34. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. That's an insightful pair. Know what is right with your mind and do what is right with your body. Do what you know is right. Be sober-minded. The ESV says, wake up from your drunken stupor. That teaches us that we must guard our thinking. We must be diligent with what and how we learn. The mind is worth paying excellent attention to. And as the prior phrase indicates, choose your sources wisely. Such keen awareness to our thought life is not an option, especially for believers. Woe to the Christian who is more influenced by the daily news than the daily word. Woe to the Christian who is more persuaded by his ungodly friends than his godly ones. Paul says, become sober-minded as you ought. This is our moral duty. Believers are commanded to have strong, right minds. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you may prove what the will of God is. This reminds us that the will of God is not meant, he, did not, he does not put it out there for, us, for it to be eluded 
It's there to be found. It's there to be known. It's there to be proven. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. We have a moral obligation to know truth. Verse 34 continues to teach us that right behavior is the mandatory response to right thinking. That's why Paul says, and stop sinning. As deep as Scripture is, I appreciate how frequently it drops back down to kindergarten level education. Stop sinning. The verse goes on to say, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Some were not sober-minded. Some did not give attention to the transformation of their mind. Some did not choose their company well. And for this reason, they questioned, doubted, and even denied the resurrection. What a shame to, to those who have the truth sitting at their doorstep begging to come in. This is a good moment for all of us to pause again for reflection. We may not doubt the resurrection, but what about the sufficiency of Scripture? What about the good, sovereign will of God? Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We may not doubt the resurrection, but what about the joy of suffering? James 1, 2, and 3. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We are commanded to be sober-minded with the wisdom of God in all these matters for our own benefit, for the sake of the body of Christ, for the sake of our witness to the lost, for the sake of the glory of God. It's an application point for us. Christian friend, are you and I students of the wisdom of God? Do we regularly and faithfully sit at the feet of the Word, seeking and learning and submitting? We must continually be in the lifelong process of becoming a master of the Word. For some here today, perhaps this is the message of chapter 15 for you or me today. Paul continues in verse 35. He continues his legal case. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. Let's be very clear here. I don't believe Paul is rebuking a person for asking sincere questions. He's not rebuking the honest seeker. Who is he categorizing as the foolish one? He's rebuking those in the church who wrongfully have very little knowledge of God. He's reproving those who are not sober-minded, but were rather drunk in their thinking. He's reprimanding those who were sinning in the church and who had chosen such ungodly company that they were now thinking that the promise of the resurrection is actually a lie. Those are the foolish in the church who ought to have known better. Paul properly identifies their rejection of God's wisdom and their bold advocation of their own wisdom, which again is nothing but foolishness. We studied this in depth back in chapters 2 and 3. The wisdom of God versus the foolishness of man. Verse 36 going forward, Paul answers these two probably foolish questions for the benefit of all. What does the resurrection look like? How does it work? Verse 36 continues, 
That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead, meaning there are clearly different body types demonstrated all throughout the world. So it is with the spiritual. It will simply be a different new body. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, that is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy, referring to the Genesis account of God forming Adam out of the dust of the ground. The second man, that is Christ, is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earth, earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. That whole text is a most enlightening and powerful truth. Unless something changes in us, these mortal bodies will not inherit the kingdom of God or eternal life. The scripture teaches us that something must change. The natural body must become a spiritual one. The image of humanity must be changed into the image of Christ in order to inherit citizenship in the kingdom of God and life eternal with him. These are magnificent truths to consider for any person seeking the meaning of life and especially the meaning of the life to come. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye, of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Speaking to the believers, we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. Appreciate the word must in those verses there. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We learn from these verses and so many others like them that Jesus is the source for life's victory. He is the means by which the natural becomes spiritual, 
by which the mortal becomes immortal. He is the mechanism by which sinful, guilty flesh and blood are changed into being worthy of the kingdom of God and eternal life with Him. These verses teach us that the ultimate victory, the greatest possible achievement, the most glorious experience, which is life over death, happens through Jesus Christ our Lord. Scripture is literally revealing to us the last chapter in the book of the universe. Death is swallowed up in victory. That means that death loses the war. The most bitter and excruciating sting to humanity will be gone. Sin will be gone. The law that condemns all sinners is fulfilled in Christ. He died for our sins so that all who repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their risen Savior will become victorious over death. They will be saved. Romans 10, 9. Now in verse 57, Paul gives us the most befitting response. Thanks be to God. He alone has done what none of us can do for ourselves. Show me a person who can create eternal life. Show me a person who can remove their guilt from all of their own personal sins. Show me a person who has power over death. There is no such person except the person Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the spotless Lamb who is slain for the sins of the world, who is and will be always the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is He who has won the victory over death and eternal death by virtue of his sacrifice on the cross and his bodily resurrection from the dead. And the power of God through Jesus Christ is not just a victory to be noted, it is a gift to be claimed. Verse 57 continues, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the message of the Bible. This is the gospel. This is why Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth to not only deliver this message, but to fulfill this message. As we wrap up our study in 1 Corinthians, Paul has done nothing less in this chapter than trumpet the invitation to join Christ in the gift of victory. Friend, are you fighting life? Are you fearful of death? Does your heart hang heavy with the guilt of past sins? Have you found yourself with little to no hope for tomorrow, not not even to mention eternity? What about the next life? Are you prepared? Are you certain? I invite you I urge you, if you haven't already, to accept God's free gift of victory. If you believe the truth that is sitting right in front of you, why not receive it? If you believe this is the Word of God, why not 
stand in it. Why not cling fast, hold fast to it, lest your belief be in vain? Listen to the words of Romans 10, verses 8 to 13. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. It's this close to you, Paul is saying, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, verse 9, he confesses Jesus is Lord, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That's one of the sweetest phrases in all of Scripture. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your religious background is. It doesn't matter what past you have. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friend, Perhaps this is the message of chapter 15 for you this day. If you haven't already, won't you accept God's gift of victory and make Him your Lord and Savior today? If that's your desire, please come meet with me or Pastor Mark after the service. We'll be right up here in the front. Or speak to a friend here in the church. Or simply pray it in your heart right this second. Do what those verses on the screen say, and you will be saved if you do them with your heart. For those of us who live in the freedom of Christ's forgiveness and His salvation and His grace, for those of us who have the privilege of living in victory, Paul now gives us verse 58. History defines hold fast back in verse 2. Verse 58, therefore, and you know that the word therefore always points backwards. It's therefore a reason. Seeing that everything just stated is true, seeing that there is a resurrection, seeing that our faith and our salvation and hope are not in vain, seeing that in the end, Jesus Christ will call, conquer all enemy authority and power, including the authority and power of death, and seeing that the victory is ours, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This verse challenges us to direction, position, and action. And we don't just do the work of the Lord, we abound in it. I cannot help but wonder how many problems of this life cause turmoil in the lives of believers simply because we aren't abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's find out, not, by, not, not just by doing the work of the Lord, 
but by abounding in it, knowing that our toil, not our occasional effort, not 90 minutes on a Sunday morning, but our life of toil is not in vain in the Lord. Kingdom work done with kingdom grace will always yield kingdom results. Our toil is not in vain in the Lord. When the resurrection comes, it will be worth it all, as they say. I don't know about you, but my mind is about to explode with the wealth of truth and goodness in chapter 15. And we've only scratched the surface. Can you give me five more minutes to read through chapter 16? Or I will not be able to sleep for weeks, knowing I never even read the last chapter of the book. So quickly with me. Let's let Scripture conclude our study of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Stop right there. That is quite a model for missionaries. Tell the church not to even take an offering when you get there. Instead, just instruct them to start saving weekly for about six months in advance. Verse 3. That was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> Read verse 1 and 2 again. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Okay, so Paul is off the hook. The offerings weren't for him. They were for the needs in Jerusalem. Thus, Paul is urging them, store for a long time to minister to your brothers and sisters who are in need. Verse 4, And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Remember, that's where he's writing from. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. That's probably the wild beasts he was referring back to in the prior chapter. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work. Oh, that that could be said of every single one of us, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encourage him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Oh, that others would speak of us in such a way, eh? that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labor. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 
This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks be to God. How can anything else but come off our lips when we look back to the amazing plan of redemption that we see all through Scripture? When we see how weak humanity is, how incapable they are of doing what is right, how incapable of being holy, how incapable of granting their own forgiveness, let alone grasping eternal life for themselves. And yet you loved us and you sent Jesus Christ to die for us even yet while we were sinners. Thank you. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lord, for the resurrection, its power, its implications for us. Thank you that Jesus was raised to, from the dead by the Father, fulfilling the wrath of God and fulfilling the curse. Thank you that he was raised so that we could be raised. Thank you that he died so that we could die with him and be buried with him, but then be raised with him. Lord, these are huge truths for us to even begin to consider, but we know that you have given us your word that we might understand what is necessary. All that we need to know to prove what the good will of God is, that which is acceptable and perfect. Lord, help us to go from this place knowing the will of God. Thank you for the power of your word. We marvel at these chapters we've studied and the wisdom of God, how profound. And yet, Lord, as we were reminded back in the early part of the book, you chose the weak, the foolish, the lowly of this world. Thank you, Lord, that you have chosen us so that you might display in us and through us your magnificent power. Lord, may the world see us, may you see us, being immovable and steadfast and always abounding in the work of the Lord. We are not here just to be saved, but to live out our salvation. How it brings glory to you. How it protects us from the, so many of the unnecessary and needless turmoil of this life. Lord, may every one of us grow in the victory the daily victory, not only the once and for all victory of salvation, but the daily victory that you give us through your grace. May we all look back and say, we are who we are by the grace of God. Lord, may we look back and say that your grace was not in vain. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our church family. Let us go from this place changed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.